Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 68. We're going to Hebrews chapter 3 for this one. And we are going to enter into a comparison of glory. And we'll get to it momentarily. As many of you know, we are still continuing what could very well be a true sabbatical, a rest, a lying fallow of the ground, not meeting for a while physically, and yet our hearts are being knit together, I think, more than ever before in our absence from one another. But in our absence, we are still going to continue, and you might check this out on a slider at tetelestai or tetelestai.org. We are continuing with Treasures for Children this year, in which we collect and gather presents for the children, and in cooperation and collaboration with the Salvation Army here in New Kensington, a lot of kids will have a truly happy Christmas morning because of your generosity. So we'll be announcing more and more about that, Treasures for Children, and that's going to be ongoing from this moment. Father, we thank you for another opportunity, the 68th opportunity to be exact, to be together in heart and mind and soul in the study of your word specifically in a homily that you inspired through an anonymous author in the early 60s or perhaps the late 60s of the first century, which is by your spirit just as powerful, just as weighty, just as momentous, just as encouraging and hope-giving now as it was then. So we pray that you will grant us the keenness of perception and the sense of discernment as we take in your word that you'll allow us by the spirit of faith to unite faith with the things that we hear so that the light that shines from the face of Jesus Christ giving us the knowledge of your glory would truly shine into our hearts so we entrust our spirit to you that we may be taught of your spirit and truly benefit from this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. The comparison of Jesus, God's Son, with angels, which we discovered and studied in Hebrews 1.1-2.16, is followed by a comparison of Jesus with Moses. Now, we've expressed curiosity about this before because it would seem that the argument should go this way. Jesus is a superior intermediary to angels. He is even superior to Moses. We think that's the way it should go. Angels and even superior to Moses. We, We would say Jesus is a superior intermediary to Moses. He is even superior to angels. In fact, that's what we would think. I think in Western culture, we would think Jesus is superior to Moses. He is even superior to angels because we would assume that angels are superior to Moses. And so this argument is curious because the author is saying Jesus is superior as an intermediary, superior to angels. He's even superior to Moses. And so the idea here seems to be that Moses is even greater than or at least equal to the angels. And that's not what we consider, I don't think, in Western culture. But it is something that was very familiar to these people, the recipients of this letter. So it is true that angels, in Jesus' own words when he spoke of offending these little ones of his, he said the angels of these little ones, quote, continually see the face of my Father in heaven. They see the face of my Father in heaven. 
So like priests, they are face to face with God in a kind of intermediary function. These angels are face to face with the Father and the Father is for the little ones. Matthew 8.10, Gabriel, one of the most famous and renowned of the angels, in particular is an angel who said himself to Mary, something about Mary, incidentally, we'll get into that in a moment. Gabriel, in particular, is an angel who stands in the presence of God. Luke 1.19. So we have a little angelology going on here. Gabriel announced himself to Mary in that way. So it's not a stretch to consider angels to be priestly, not in the fact that they make propitiation for sins, but they do intercede in a way. And so they are priestly in the sense that they see the face of God. However, in a passage that is about to be alluded to in Hebrews, that being Numbers 12, Numbers 12, 7 and 8, alluded to in 3 of Hebrews 3, 5 and 6, God, in commending Moses, says, He is faithful in all my house. God is defending Moses against terrible accusations and against a kind of cancellation idea. And so he says, my opinion, he is faithful in all my house. Numbers 12, 7. And he goes on to say in Numbers 12, 8, with him I speak face-to-face. Literally, in the Greek text, it's stoma and stoma, mouth-to-mouth in the Septuagint. So one may say that just because Moses spoke with God face-to-face didn't make him a priestly figure. But then one would have to reckon with A, the fact that Moses was of the tribe of Levi. So he was a Levite. We know that from Exodus chapters 2, verses 1 through 10. And someone who would say that Moses was not a priestly figure would also have to deal, B, with Psalm 99 and verse 6, which is the Septuagint of 98, 6, which says this, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those calling on his name. They appealed to the Lord and he listened to them. Now Moses and Samuel and Aaron all appear in Hebrews in one way or another. Moses and Aaron especially, and at great length. Moses and Samuel were among the most renowned of the prophets. If you even look at a concordance, you'll see each of their names represented many, many times in the scriptures. Moses and Samuel were among the most renowned of the prophets in God's view. And both were accorded a priestly kind of intercession. In other words, they were able to go to the Lord and pray effectively for an in an intercessory way for Israel. In fact, both of these men, and this is a very sobering thing, and it's going to constitute a prayer that we're texting out very soon and will be prayed hopefully by 11 o'clock Sunday morning on the part of many hopefully as many as possible at the same time. But we're looking at Jeremiah 15. My translation reads like this. Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah says, quote, 
even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me. So there he speaks to them not so much as prophets as they are priests in a way, at least in the function of intercession, not propitiation. He says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me, my soul, and our God uses the word soul for himself, suke, as he does in Hebrews 10.38, which cites Habakkuk 2.4. My soul could not be toward them, meaning Judah or Israel or the southern tribe of Israel. Then he said, send this people away and let them go. Even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me, he said. In Ezekiel, he kind of makes a different analogy, but well, a similar analogy, but using different names. Even if Daniel and Noah and Job, those three men were interceding, I still would have to discipline Israel. So, it seems that Judah was in such a state of corruption and idolatry at that time that God was about to send them into exile, which would be sort of like revoking, at least revoking their most favored nation status with God. Their state and condition at this time was so bad that not even the intercession of such intermediaries, great ones, as Moses and Samuel together could turn God's soul to spare them this discipline. This is very sobering to me. When I read this, I felt its weight. And I burst into the following prayer. And I have to say burst into the following prayer, but I did write it down, this prayer. And this is my prayer. This is my official prayer for my nation, the United States of America. And I hope you'll join me in this and that many more will. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is standing before you. A greater mediator than Moses and Samuel, to be sure. In his name, and for his sake alone. Let your soul continue to be toward our nation. Do not send us away from your favor. Revive us by your word. Send your word to heal us. Let the knowledge of your glory that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, shine into the hearts of millions in this country and make us a light to the nations. That was my prayer. It burst forth from my soul, from my spirit, when I read Jeremiah 15.1, and the weight of it hit me for this country. Now, we're going to stay line on line in Hebrews. And what I like to do sometimes is flex a little bit and send some blood through, circulating through the rest of Hebrews. In other words, we look at a verse, but then we show how that correlates and presents an arc of coherence or a trajectory throughout the whole epistle so that we, like we did with Revelation, we have the whole of it in hand at once, even though we're looking at smaller parts of it. Now, the probable reason that the argument of this homilist and preacher pastor goes, Jesus is a greater intermediary than angels. He is even a greater intermediary than Moses. The reason it's going that way and not a way that we would suppose, is because Moses, according to some Jewish teachings, which were extant at the time of the writing of Hebrews, and probably known by the recipients of this 
epistle, this sermon in a letter, were aware of these, that Moses was considered to have been at least equal to the angels and perhaps superior to them. And to provide evidence for this, one of the commentaries, one of the six or seven commentaries I'm reading on Hebrews is by William Lane, and he says this, In some strands of the Jewish tradition, the testimony of Moses in Numbers 12.7, which is going to be alluded to very soon, was used to prove that Moses had been granted a higher rank and privilege than the ministering angels. If this interpretation may be presupposed among Jewish communities of the diaspora as well, it clarifies the structure of Hebrews. Notice that what he says there. It clarifies the structure of Hebrews where the Son is compared first to the angels, 1, 1 to 2, 16, and then to Moses, their superior, in 3, 1 to 6. You see what I'm getting at here? Hopefully it's getting across fairly clearly. Lane goes on to say it would indicate that it was by no means superfluous when Jesus had been proven superior to the angels to continue with a demonstration of his superiority to Moses. Another commentary I'm reading is by Harold Atridge, which is also a phenomenal, both of these are wonderful commentaries, by the way. Atridge wrote this, in considering the comparison between Christ and the angels, we noted significant parallels between the image of heavenly angelic priests and the Christological portrait of Hebrews. And we argued that our text is indebted to Jewish speculation. Whether it's Jewish tradition or Jewish speculation, Moses was considered to be at least equal and probably greater in honor and glory, in glory and honor, than the angels. Later tradition, and I'm speaking specifically of a book called Ben Sira, B-E-N-S-I-R-A, B-E-N, one word, S-I-R-A, otherwise known as Sirach. The Wisdom of Ben Sira is a book which is called Sirach. It's not in our canon of scriptures. It's what we might call deuterocanonical because it's second to the canon in one sense. Also, Philo, in which we find many, many phrases that are like phrases found and concepts found in Hebrews. Philo, in his Life of Moses, chapter 2, section 1, lines 66 to 86, writes about Moses and his being on a par or greater than angels. So likewise, the greatness and glory of Moses was touted in Sirach, you can find that, at least I found it, in my Revised Standard Version of the Bible. They contain the so-called apocryphal books. And Sirach chapter 45, verses 1 through 4, reads like this. And again, this is the Revised Standard RSV uh, Bible. From his descendants, the Lord brought forth a man of mercy who found favor in the sight of all flesh and was beloved by God and man. Moses, whose memory is blessed, he made him equal in glory to the holy ones, those being angels, and made him great in the fears of his enemies. By his words he caused signs to cease. The Lord glorified him in the presence of kings. He gave him commands for his people and showed him part of his glory. He sanctified him through faithfulness and meekness. He chose him out of all mankind. Now, as we'll see, however, Moses was the most humble man on earth. He was the most humble man on earth. That's a divine testimony in Numbers 12.3. But we're going to see that he was the most humble man on earth only up until Jesus. Come to me, learn from me, for I am humble and lowly of heart. 
Jesus is the exemplar of humility <clears throat> that leads to exaltation, Matthew 23, 12. So Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, 23, 12, <clears throat> Jesus becomes the most humble man on earth. And so his exaltation is greater than any exaltation of any person. Moreover, Moses may have spoken face to face with God, mouth to mouth, face to face, Numbers 12, 8, while he was on earth. But Jesus appears in the presence of God in heaven right now and throughout the age, making intercession for us throughout the age in the power of an indestructible life in order to save us to the point of perfect conformity to him. For when we see him, we will be like him. Hebrews 7.16 and 7.25, as well as Hebrews 9.24, compared with or connected or corresponding with 1 John 3.2 and Romans 8.29, as well as Philippians 3.20. On top of this, we will see, as we go on, that Jesus is, quote, the mediator of a better covenant. That means a better covenant than the covenant of which Moses, listen carefully, and angels were intermediaries. This is all headed toward a demonstration of the superiority of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And that's... The New Covenant, of course, is going to be referred to in both Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And Jesus will be called the mediator of that New Covenant, which is also called everlasting and called better than the old one in Hebrews 8, 6 and 9, 15. So now let's go to the actual argument in Hebrews 3, 1 where we are located right now. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession, that is, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house. That's an allusion to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. Now, as declared in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, and we looked at it, the crucial characteristic of a steward or of anyone who is entrusted with a task, a trust, a mission, or a commission is faithfulness or fidelity. That's what you look for. Hebrews 3, 2 introduces what was known in ancient rhetoric, and this is where we're taking an advance or going in a slightly different direction. In rhetoric, it's called auxesis, A-U-X, long E-S-I-S, auxesis. And that means favorable comparison. So by that is meant that this is a particular case in which Moses, with whom Jesus is to be compared, is not criticized or disparaged. It's not saying Moses is bad and Jesus is good. By that then is meant, auxesis means that the glory of Jesus is actually amplified by a comparison with Moses in a favorable light. So he's not criticized or disparaged Moses in order to lift up Jesus. He's not, in the words of modern parlance, he's not knocked, bashed, blasted, doxed, canceled, or trolled in order to lift up Jesus. Instead, Moses is portrayed in a very favorable light, both here and throughout Hebrews, in all references to him. This is in keeping with the tone of Hebrews, which is never demeaning of Judaism or the Jewish scriptures or of renowned people in the Jewish scriptures or even of the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. It is not demeaning or degrading of that priesthood. 
Instead, these are all shown in a favorable light in order to exhibit the surpassing glory of Jesus and his once and for all and forever sacrifice by which sin was taken away, you see. Jesus is the supreme exemplar of faithfulness through suffering leading to exaltation. Now, this trajectory, or we might call it an arc of coherence, persists through Hebrews 11, in which luminaries, or we might even want to use the word celebrities, from former eras, including significantly Moses, read Hebrews 11:23 to 28, for example, these luminaries are presented in glowing favor as having, quote, obtained a good report in Hebrews 11:2, by operating in faith, fidelity, and faithfulness in their particular times and in their particular agonas or arenas of contention. We all got one. There's a saying that says everybody has a cross, their cross to bear, and that's not true. We all bear Christ's cross, one cross, but we all have an agona in which we fight and persevere, an individual one, and we persevere with the perseverance of Christ. In Hebrews 12, the writer puts on display the surpassing example of Jesus, who is called there the pioneer and perfecter of our faith the pioneer, we might say, and completer of our fidelity and faithfulness, Hebrews 12.2. Just as in Hebrews 3.1 and 2, he's called the apostle and archpriest of our confession. Now compare apostle and high priest or archpriest of our confession with beginner and completer of our faith, and you have faith compared with confession there. So by comparison of Hebrews 3.1 and 12.2, we discern a correspondence between our confession and our faith. And that shows that our confession is indeed of that which we believe. Our outward confession about Jesus is what we inwardly believe in our hearts. It is also that which in Hebrews 4.14, we are to hold fast. We hold fast to that confession. And in Hebrews 10.23, we are to hold it fast without wavering, without vacillating, without hesitating, without double-mindedness, in other words. Now, here's a principle. We can only hold fast to an outward confession if we hold fast to an inward conviction. If we pull back from the living God with an interior heart of unbelief, our exterior confession becomes empty or we just stop making that confession. The root has been destroyed, so the fruit withers and dies, in other words. Throughout all of Hebrews, there is a river of incentive in which the writer and indeed the Holy Spirit keeps fortifying and reinforcing the notion that perseverance in faith and faithfulness through the agonas in which we fight and persevere always leads to glory, honor, and reward. All right, let's back up. Hebrews 3 again. We even use the gear called reverse, but it's only so that we can have creative and beneficial repetition. Hebrews 3 2 goes on to say, quote, Jesus was faithful. Jesus is the subject, was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was in all God's house. Now, in the English language and lots of English translations, we would probably begin a new sentence here. He, Jesus, was faithful to God. But I'd rather be faithful to the Greek text. Sometimes when we try to make the text more compliant or amenable with our language and with our expressions, we betray the real meaning of the Greek text. Sometimes we don't, sometimes we do. So I'm going to put it this way. It's 1, 3, 1, the end of 3, 1, the last word is Jesus, 
And then 3.2, same sentence, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now again, and I, want you, and I hope you see this, this comparison portrays Moses in a favorable and not in an unfavorable light. Now, today is going to be a, a debate between two presidential candidates in our country. And because I'm recording that we're, we are recording this on a Thursday for Sunday. So tonight there's going to be a debate. And imagine a debate between politicians when one person gets up and looks at the other person and says, this person has excelled splendidly in their career. It's not going to happen. I, I almost can promise that it won't happen tonight. It might. I, it would be, it would only be by an intervention of the Holy Spirit. But imagine a politician saying she has excelled in all of her career in law and in academics and in politics. She, my opponent, has excelled. Well, that's kind of like what's happening here. Only Moses, of course, is not an opponent of God, but it's like saying she has excelled. But I have something even better to offer you, fellow Americans. I have something even better. What a difference in tone that would be. But you know what? That's not, it's just not politics. It doesn't happen that way. There, you may be able to point to some race somewhere in the country right now between people that are vying for representation where that's happening. But I, I haven't seen it. But that's what we have going on here. And Auxasis, A-U-X-E-S-I-S, otherwise known as amplification, is not like a political campaign in which one's rival is usually presented in a very unfavorable light. Imagine a campaign, as I said. Imagine this. Right now it's such an easy time to do this in which one candidate says of the other, she has certainly excelled in every way, but I have something better, even better, to offer. That is seldom heard in politics, but it is exactly the idea here in Auxasis. Ever since Aristotle wrote rhetoric, that's been a very important rhetorical device, persuasion device. Moses was faithful in all God's house, even as Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him. But there's something about Jesus. There's something about Mary. But there's even something more about Jesus, which exceeds the faithfulness and the importance even of Moses. And I could even say even of Mary. But we're not on that subject. And there is something about Jesus' significance as a deliverer and a liberator, which has a quality and a quantity that is greater even than the deliverance that God effected through Moses. The writer is still revealing the surpassing importance of what God spoke in a son in these last days even over and above that which he spoke in the prophets in previous historical eras. So I like here, again, one, another, a third commentary that I'm reading now. Craig Coaster, K-O-E-S-T-E-R, probably pronounced it wrong, said regarding this auxasis, otherwise known as amplification, this is what Craig Coaster wrote. Hebrews does not denigrate Moses, by recalling his unfaithfulness, as it was recorded in Numbers 20 and verse 12, the point of, he goes on to say a little later, the point of the comparison is not to disqualify Moses as God's servant, but to magnify Jesus' glory as God's son. So that is well and pithily said by Mr. Coaster. A key word in Hebrews is better. It's a key word. It's the word kratonos. Now, don't be confused, but kratonos, K-R-E-I, 
double T-O-N-O-S, is actually a comparative form of the adjective agathos, agathos. So really, agathos is used some 13 times in Hebrews as a key word, but it's in the form of kratonos, which is a comparative use of the term, comparative use. Agathos carries the sense of intrinsic or essential goodness. In the final analysis, there is only one who is essentially agathos. Jesus said it himself to the so-called rich young aristocrat. He said only one is agathos, good. Matthew nineteen seventeen. So the idea of auxasis here, which is a favorable comparison or amplification, this, the idea here is not, 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 Moses is bad and Jesus is good. It's rather, Moses is great, Jesus is still greater. Of course, how much greater is still to be shown. The comparison known as amplification or oxasis in rhetoric, the science of rhetoric, continues in the comparison of Jesus the archpriest with Aaron. See, we flex a little bit and send some blood through the rest of the epistle here, the rest of the sermon, because he's going to do the same thing with Aaron. Fifty pages later in Coaster's commentary, while including fragments from Aristotle's rhetoric, chapter 1, section 9, line 39, while alluding to those, Coaster wrote the following, just as Aaron received the position of high priest because God called him, so also with Christ, that's 5.5a of Hebrews, comparing someone favorably with a person of high repute was called amplification or auxasis. Amplification was, quote, one of the forms of praise. That's how Aristotle would put it. One of the forms of praise since it shows superiority. And as Aristotle would also say, superiority is one of the things that are noble, close quote. But Coaster goes on to say, Jesus was like Aaron in that both were called by God, although Aaron and other priests served for a limited time on earth, whereas Jesus serves forever in heaven. Hebrews seven twenty three to 28. So you see, the same kind of auxasis or amplification is going to pertain when we get to Aaron, Moses' brother, but Aaron represents the Levitical priesthood. God's not knocking it. He's saying for its time, it was great. And the glory of the covenant had a certain glory. David De Silva, that's D-E and then capital S-I-L-V-A, in another commentary on Hebrews, makes an excellent point about the PT's choice of the Levitical priesthood as the object of comparison. He says, quote, the author's choice of the Levitical priesthood as the object of comparison is dictated not by the presumed situation of the hearers returning to a dependence upon the temple cult, and thus reassimilating to non-Christian Judaism. I hope you're listening to that, because that is a perception that some of us held in the past. But by the fact that they are the only other mediators of the favor of the one God. Comparing Jesus to the priests of Greco-Roman cults would be meaningless, as the latter stand in relation to no true gods at all. So he's saying, really, the thing that the PT's after is not that they're going to retreat back into Judaism or forms of the Judaistic worship in the temple, in part of the temple as it's called the temple cult, but only because he is comparing intermediary figures and by doing so amplifying Jesus as mediator. Now it makes me think of 1 Timothy 2.5, and we will think of it as we close shortly. A similar term 
to amplification or describing amplification similar to oxasis is the word syncresis, S-Y-N-C-R-I-S-I-S, also spelled S-Y-N-K-R-I-S-I-S, syncresis. According to E.W. Bullinger, who has a whole list in Appendix 6 of the Companion Bible of figures of speech, syncresis, according to Bullinger, is, quote, the repetition of a number of resemblances. And he gives a splendid example, and I love this example because it applies to each and every one of you who are listening. You could be this in Isaiah 32. Of course, ultimately, it's referring to Jesus Christ. It says in Isaiah 32, too, notice a series of resemblances here called syncresis. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Imagine all those four resemblances applying to one man, or we could even say one woman here. Imagine if God looks back on you and in your generation he says about you. You were like a hiding place from the wind for many in your generation. You were like a cover from a hurricane. You were like rivers of water in a desert region for your generation. You were like the shadow of a massive rock in a weary land to your generation. You were all those things. Now, of course, all those things apply ultimately to Jesus Christ, but it says here, and a man shall be this. That's a syncresis. Syncresis, according to another author that I'm enjoying, Kevin McCruden, M-C, capital C-R-U-D-E-N, was a rhetorical device, that's syncresis or oxasis, they're all the same really, used by the writer of Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews 12.24. See, we flexed a little, we sent some blood all the way through near the end of this epistle, adding that this device played a role, quote, throughout the theological argumentation of Hebrews. And then he cites 1433, 719, 722, and 8.6. then adds, quote, ancient speakers and authors employed this rhetorical tool as a way to amplify the prestige, listen carefully, as a way to amplify the prestige of a subject by comparing that subject to a person whose exemplary character was evident to all. By this definition, syncresis, now I'm speaking now, so by this definition, syncresis appears to be a synonym for what we call the figure of speech called amplification or what Aristotle called auxasis. In any case, the PT uses... You see, Hebrews isn't just, oh, let's just read that, that, that book, that epistle. This, is thing, this thing is so carefully and meticulously constructed under the power and genius of the Holy Spirit that that's why we're taking 68 increments just to get through 3, 1, and 2 of Hebrews. And still... We're not grasping the whole of this. I hope we're getting enough of it so that you're a little more familiar with this homily, but more than that, so that you see Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor, just a little bit clearer with your soul and the eyes of your heart. It's all I can do is preach, teach, and do the arduous but joyous study that it takes to get these messages out. So by definition... Amplification is the same as syncresis. The pastor who wrote this, and he was a pastor, a preacher, a pastor teacher, uses it with deafness and sensitivity in this homily. Deftness, D-E-F-T-N-E-S-S, and sensitivity in this homily. It's interesting to me, and this is what comes to my mind when I'm studying, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul made a point of saying that in preaching Christ, when he came to them after his experience on the Acropolis or Mars Hill in Athens, Paul chose not 
to use sophisticated rhetoric. 1 Corinthians 2.1, because he said in this case, it would have made the gospel ineffective. In other words, if Paul were to rely on rhetoric rather than on God, you don't rely on rhetoric, you rely on God. If he had done that and relied on rhetoric rather than on God, as some of his detractors did, the gospel would not have its intended effect on the audience. But the writer of Hebrews, now listen very carefully here, because the writer of Hebrews does use rhetoric. In this case, he used rhetoric, but it was under God's direction to make the gospel effective. He used rhetoric to make the gospel effective, whereas in Paul's case, and at that time, Paul didn't use rhetoric because it would have made the gospel ineffective here He uses rhetoric, the author here, because by the use of rhetoric, the gospel will be made effective and clear. Now, by that, I'm not saying he was like the preachers who use techniques and gimmicks as sophists. I'd be very careful of that if I was a preacher of the gospel, that trying to appeal to your generation so much that you've got to use their terminology, you've got to use their style, you've got to appeal to their everything, rather than introduce them to something beyond where they are. You see, back then, there were a lot of people called sophists, and a lot of them, Christian preachers, became sophists. They were like pop philosophers. They went around, and really, they were showcasing their rhetorical talent to gain people's applause. And that's not desirable at all, ever. But the PT who wrote Hebrews did use rhetoric, the art of it. It's an art. It's a science, really. And Aristotle wrote a whole book called Rhetoric. I'm not talking about rhetoric where people use it negatively today. Oh, that's just rhetoric. No, rhetoric originally was a very important orator oratorical science of persuasion. And so this PT did use rhetoric and with considerable skill. That that gives the lie to all this stuff about the original preachers were just a bunch of ignorant, dumb fishermen and people, you know, country bumpkins. Wrong! This guy was an academician. He was highly educated, and he used rhetoric with such considerable skill as to be compared with some of the great philosophers. And so he did use rhetoric and with considerable skill, but here's the difference. He did it with a spirit-directed use of Scripture to present a word of exhortation that's just exactly as potent today as it was in 66 or 67 or 68 AD of the first century. So it is certainly the PT's intent to amplify the prestige of Jesus. What's my job? My job is to amplify the prestige of Jesus. We are, we preach Christ Jesus, says 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. And ourselves, your slaves, for Christ's sake. Our job is to amplify the prestige of Jesus in the eyes of our hearers. Just as the PT who wrote Hebrews had the desire to amplify the prestige of Jesus in the eyes of his readers. His intent, exactly like Paul's intent is that Christ be magnified in, this, in his body. That means during his time on earth, he wanted to magnify Christ. That's what he means in Philippians 1.20. And not only in his human body, but in his body of work, his body of writings, his epistolary corpus and content. The PT magnifies Christ here, not at the expense of Moses like some Christians think. It's not at the expense of Moses but by actually commending Moses with the intention of showing the surpassing glory and honor that belongs to Jesus and that Moses himself recognized. 
He wrote of me, Jesus said. It should be noted that a contrast could be made, if you wanted to do it that way, it could be made between Moses and Jesus, which would involve showing the sin and failure of Moses. He strikes that rock twice. For that reason, he can't go into the land. He can look at it all day long, but he can't go in it. Why? Because he sinned when he was tested. Jesus was tested like Moses and then some and never sinned. We could do it that way, but he didn't do it that way. The PT magnifies Christ not at the expense of Moses, but by actually commending Moses with the intention of showing the surpassing glory and honor of Jesus. So that what? So that we see Jesus crowned with a superior glory and honor. It should be noted that in contrast, a contrast, again, could have been made between Moses and Jesus where Moses was made to look like a sinner and a failure, and Jesus, in comparison, the sinlessness of Jesus. But that's not what the PT is up to. I'm asking all the time, what is he up to here? Or if I kind of like do a soliloquy, I say, what are you up to here, preacher? What he's up to here is like Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. The pastor's not trying to say that the old covenant had no glory in its time. But that glory, that, that the glory of the new, the better, and the everlasting covenant has surpassing and ever-enduring glory. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3, the children of Israel were not able to gaze at Moses' face. Talk about wearing a mask. Moses wore one for 40 years. You tired of wearing one? Moses wore one for 40 years. He wore a veil over his face. He masked his face. Why? So that people could not stare at the glory in his face. Not because it would blind him, but because the glory was fading. Every time he appeared, it faded a little more. And so, later in that same passage, Paul said that he and his fellow ministers of the new covenant 2 Corinthians 3, 6, having confidence in the hope engendered by it, use great boldness. That's the word parousia or parousia, parousia. That's also used in Hebrews 3, 6, 4, 16, 10, 19, and 10, 35. Great boldness, and that means freedom of speech, something that's being threatened in our own country right now. I'm willing to do just about all the mandates that the government places upon us as a church until they say, you can't preach that message you've been preaching anymore. Then I'm going to, guess what I'll do? I'll engage in civil disobedience. Now, in their speaking, preachers of the New Testament are, quote, not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, a mask on, so that the Israelites would not stare at the end of what was fading away. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13. This fading glory now was compared to the surpassing and never fading glory that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That's what we call the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which God intends to have shine into our hearts. We see Jesus crowned with glory, this glory, the glory that is of the knowledge of God and honor. The knowledge of the glory of God shines in Jesus' face. We see Jesus, and when we do, we see him crowned with glory and honor, which means that in his very face emanates the knowledge of the glory of God. And my contention as a PT in the 21st century is that this light shines into our hearts when the word of God is boldly and accurately proclaimed when Christ is preached in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit 
and is united with faith in the hearers. Faith that is gifted to us by the spirit of faith. 2 Corinthians 4.13. Everybody's going to one day come to that faith in Ephesians 4.13. Put 2 Corinthians 4.13 together with Ephesians 4.13 and have a feast on the word. Last consideration of the day here. I guess that would be fourth gear in a message if we were to go by my usual analogy. Throughout this passage, we're still hearing the echo of the voice of God through the man of God in 1 Samuel 2.35. What did he say? I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And I will make him a faithful house. House is going to be a key word from now on. Not the doctor, but the house of God. Furthermore, through all of the comparisons, we, came, we come to see Jesus as the only mediator between God and humanity. Again, the pastoral epistles, and this alone, if I die, someone should take up this mantle and compare the pastoral epistles with Hebrews or show that the pastoral epistles contain interpretive value for all that was written in the epistles of the New Testament and really the whole New Testament. The pastoral epistles come in handy right here with regard to Jesus as mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, right on the heels of the declaration that God our Savior wills the salvation of all of humankind and that all will come to the knowledge of the truth that is personally embodied in Jesus, Ephesians 4.13, 4.21 compared with 1 Timothy 2.4. Following that is 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, which begins with the echo, speaking of echoes, of the Shema Israel, which in Deuteronomy 6.4 goes, Shema Israel, Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, which in English is Hear, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So Paul is echoing that Shema Israel when he says God is one. He writes, for there is one God and one mediator between God and the human race. Not God in Israel, but God in the human race. The man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6a. So here it is. Angels are not the sole, S-O-L-E, mediators between God and man. Moses is not the sole mediator between God and man. Aaron and the Levitical priests are not the sole mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus, is the sole and only mediator, and he is, as we'll see later on, the mediator and guarantor of a new, Hebrews 8, 6, and 9, 15, and everlasting, way deep into Hebrews 13, 20, and a better covenant than the one that was ordered through priestly angels priestly angels, Galatians 3.19, by means of an intermediary, that is Moses. Moses was indeed one of the prophets of old in whom God spoke. He was an intermediary agent between God and the people of Israel. So was Aaron. But God spoke in Jesus as a son, and Jesus is a superior intermediary between God and all of humanity. Moses and Samuel were prophets with priestly functions. David was a prophet and a king. But Jesus is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15, the king, Revelation 19.16, and the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, in Psalm 110.4 and Hebrews 5.6 and many other times, and he is the Christ both now and forevermore. So through all of this, we see a trajectory or a literary arc of coherence 
proceeding from the superiority of Jesus as an intermediary agent over angels, superior over angels, over Moses, later we'll see over Aaron and Levitical priesthood, the ark, A-R-C, and the trajectory, literary trajectory, reaches to and through the author's demonstration of Jesus as the mediator. I hope you'll stay with me. The last couple sentences are vital, crucial. The arc of this trajectory reaches to and through the author's demonstration of Jesus as the mediator, again, mesites, we're going to see later on, of the new and better and everlasting covenant that was endorsed and confirmed or ratified by the blood of Jesus, which was, quote, shed for many in Matthew 26, 28, and sprinkled metaphorically speaking, but really also, sprinkled before and against the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in heaven. This eloquent blood, eloquent, why do people do blood tests? So the doctor can read them. They are eloquent tests. The blood is eloquent. It speaks of things. Jesus' blood is more eloquent than Abel's blood was that cried out from the ground. So the eloquent blood of Christ is what is being spoken of in Hebrews 12, 24. It speaks a better word, it says, than the blood of Abel. It speaks not least of the propitiation for the sins of the whole world that was made by Jesus, who is a superior priest, over the house of God, Hebrews 10, 21. That's all for today. We prayed in the middle, so I'm done. Amen.